one of the all-time favorite shows. Welcome to episode 87 of Because You Were Home. Um, it is hot as balls in Ireland. I don't know what oh, yeah. it's like where you are, but um, I have turned off my fan many a day when we were recording, but it's it's going to stay on today. I'm going to tell you from, from here, I didn't even know you had one on. That's why I was And I am very jealous. And she couldn't hear it either. And I was like, okay, it's staying on. Oh, fuck yeah. Oh my God. Like, that's why our episodes have been kind of a bit sporadic over the last few weeks because it's been on and off like mini heat waves for Ireland and it is causing our brains to melt. Melt. Concentration is gone. The will to do anything is gone. I feel like I'm in that Peter Jackson movie. <laughs> like, it's just horrific. Yeah. Yeah. And everything is gross right now. Oh, it's. Oh, it's just like it's so nice that it like it is but it's I'm just not equipped for it so most of us aren't built for this yeah yeah I don't want to be the person who poo-poo's it for everybody who loves it but I just can't do it like, oh I am that person at work I don't <laughs> care I'm like fuck all y'all it's too warm absolutely fucking not yeah so it's far too warm to do anything so we've been like trying to survive and thrive but I feel this week we're back we're back in the game that's it. We, we stank to ourselves just about enough. And we picked one where it was the concentration levels only had to be turned on halfway. That's it. And so uh, if you find that this episode is a bit spotty, people, that's on you. No, sorry. That's not on anybody. That's on fucking Mother Nature. It's on, that's on global warming, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, which is a very real thing. <laughs> yeah. And terrifying. But speaking of fans. <laughs> Thank you. This week, we are delving behind the camera um, while also investigating, investigating as if like I'm going to be like, I've done this. Someone's been watching some Colonel Wines at home. I have. That was great. And Matthew Lillard was in it. It was beautiful. Oh, my God. Amazing. It was so good. Um, so this week, we are looking at, um, I think it's safe to say, our most iconic and favourite um, mm horror directors and then we both chose a movie from their repertoires although mine again is a total fucking cheat <sighs> cheater cheater I know because I actually googled while we were like pre-phoning and I was like what was his involvement in this and it was like administrative and I was like ew <laughs> he's a secretary <laughs> I was like oh no so uh, we are looking at our favorite directors and then looking at a movie of theirs or that they are. <laughs> <laughs> that they glanced past in a room. <laughs> that we haven't seen from them. Um, yeah, so without further ado, Ema, who did you pick? Well, I mean, like, I was going to watch a film. I was like, when we were picking our films, I was like, oh, watch the people under the stairs. And uh, I was like, oh, no, that's a Wes Craven film because... I mix these guys up a lot. And I am talking about one of my favorite horror movie directors, John Carpenter, El Johnny C. Um, he is such an all-rounder for me because it was when I was finding a film of his I haven't watched. I was like, oh my God, I forgot about his repertoire. Like not just your Halloween. Well, I know he only did the first and the third, um, but like he did 
uh, they live. He did Big Trouble Little China, which I love. And my absolute, one of my all-time favorite sci-fi horrors, The Thing, to which I was heartbroken, as was John Carpenter, that Big Trouble Little China and The Thing bombed in the box office. Yeah. Yeah, like it didn't favor well. Critics hated it. And it actually like when he when these came out, because these are kind of early to the mid 80s, it made him turn his back on a lot of studios and go back into independent film, which is when he made the film Prince of Darkness in 1987, which is the film I watched. And he kind of went back to his roots. But it's I will go on and say, like, it is a cult. His roots are not a place he should stay. No, it's it's a cult classic, but I am not drinking the Kool-Aid of that cult because I did not like the film. I I tried because I love his films. Yes. But I just feel like, and it was an a really original idea and mm-hmm. I'll get into it. But it just took, I could have been the heat, but to me it took too much effort to unwrap my mind around what was happening in the film. But anyway, I will get back to that. So what we kind of decided what we do is we would give a little bit of a bio on these directors and then kind of go into like some of the films and then discuss our main film that we, <laughs> if they did direct it or if they just, you know, winked at it. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't even know if mine winked at this. <laughs> Because <laughs> it was when I was looking it up, and I was like, "Where is his name in any of this?" And then I was like, "What involvement did this person have?" Basically, it's Quentin Tarantino to Hostel is my person to this movie. Oh, he said the name and the title, and like that's good enough for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he said, "Oh, that that could be all right." He goes, "I'm quoting you on that." Wow. <laughs> so oh, I'm glad I went there. Yeah. Um, now, if you feel like someone going into too much detail with this, tough shit, people. Um, so he was born in Carthage in New York in 1948, and his family moved to Bowling Green, Kentucky in 1953. His father was a music professor at Western Kentucky University, and it was kind of this musical side that brought that kind of piqued his interest in music at a young age. But he also had a huge passion in films. He adored Western films, but yet the man has never directed a Western at all. But yet he puts like nods to Western films or themes in a lot of his films. Yeah. Um, and also, do you know that he is like trained to pilot helicopters? And oh, wow. like, yeah, he does like he has a few. I think he can do light aircraft flying. But like in every film he does, there has to be a scene where there's someone in a car or like in a car. And like especially a lot of the stuff when it's in a helicopter. I'm only wondering if he did it in the thing. He was the pilot was, you know, it was being filmed. Oh, so I'm just cool. like, yeah. Um, so when he, so he also, not just did he love Westerns, but he loved horror and 1950s science fiction. And it kind of sparked him to shoot his own eight millimeter film in his um, spare time, starting at the age of nine. Oh, wow. So yeah, like that is amazing to think of like, when I'm like, when I was nine, yeah, no, I'm nothing. I am nothing. I didn't, <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. Um, so during his childhood life, he fell in love with horror 
and as I said, sorry, sci-fi. And he watched Forbidden Planet, which has uh, Leslie Nielsen, if I have that name right. Oh my God, I hope I do. He's the guy from Naked Gun Films. Yeah. And yeah, myself and Chris watched Forbidden Planet like years ago. And the one thing that we always said we'd love is there's this robot in it called Robbie the Robot. And basically anything he, he ingests, he can replicate. So like... I think it was like they, there's this drink on it that's great so they get the robot to ingest the drink so you can constantly make the drink and we always said if like if we were in a restaurant we'd like a Robbie the robot so we could like replicate whatever food that was so nice love it um so because he had his eight millimeter camera home he thought of nothing else than just shooting short films but they're all mostly horror so you can see where this was going with him even though he loved westerns he loved doing his horrors um, so after his graduation, he joined the music school that his father was a professor in. And then after that, he attended the University of Southern California, where he majored in filmmaking. And after several months, he and his close friends wrote an educational film called The Resurrection of Bronco. And in 1971, it was named as the best live action movie. Whilst he was in college, he was also on a band called, okay, Coupe de Ville. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm sure I'm saying that right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, he was in a band. <laughs> but you know what he says? Like, even though he can take his hand to, like, because he also got, like, a synth machine when he realized how, what he can get from that as well as, like, a piano. And um, he's like, I can play a piano, but I can't read or write a note of music. So, obviously, it's just, it's like with the writing music, writing scores and filming. He's very, obviously, hands-on yes he can do it and I think it's it's his adaptability of doing it which is why he was so good at making so much more out of films on a shoestring budget because like he was there saying you know to make it like he was kind of like giving out people ideas as to how to make a shoestring budget film of any genre work and he was like obviously you know you're like your one location or your one day so that they don't have to have multiple um, outfit or costume changes. And then he was like, stretch a scene out to get your most, to buffer out your runtime. Yeah. Which is why maybe I suppose in some films, like I suppose in like Halloween is the one that will always come to my mind. You're like, oh, scene seems a bit long or this seems a bit unnecessary. But I suppose he was just doing random shots that would fill out the film. And it all worked, in my opinion. Um, he, d- he, d- he, he can't do much wrong. No, no. Um, so the success of his first film turned him into a workaholic along with a friend of his called Dan O'Bannon. And then they started working on a sci-fi, sci-fi satire called Dark Star. Because um, this came out in 1974, which is just after Star Wars. So of course they did their own. It was like a sci-fi comedy. Um, but it didn't go in. It, um, it was maybe just done too much of a shoestring budget. Um, so he had, da, 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 he aimed, no, no, sorry. I don't even know what I've written there. Um, however, it opened up some doors to him in the film industry. And he did his second film after that, which was a big success for him at the time. It was Assault on Precinct 13, which I think they did a remake of like, not to like, I'm thinking in the 2000s. Okay. Yeah, I I now haven't seen it, but basically it's like, I think it's rioters, like basically all try to attack this police station. And I think that there's like one guy left trying to hold them all off or it's the band of whatever 
cops are left in there. It's meant to be like, it's meant to be quite good. But again, you see him there. It's all based in that precinct. It's all based in the cop shop. So yeah, he's using his noggin there. Um, so the film itself did moderately well at the box office compared to his, you know, compared to Dark Star and his other college films. And the good news was that it received well during the London Film Festival. So he sold loads of seats for the films and then um, he later then got on to produce films called Eyes of Laura Mars and Zuma Beach, neither of which I have ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, so after a short break, he worked under Mustafa Akkad. And if anyone knows that name, then you are a true Halloween franchise film fan. Um, because this guy ended up buying the franchise off of Deborah Hill and John Carpenter and making it what we now know it to be in the later films. Um, so he originally joined Mustafa as an assistant director of horror films and this is where he got together making the first Halloween film along with Deborah Hill and they were together at the time and they wrote a few other films together as well before they then split up and I wonder if it was like there was pressure there was pressure for them to he had said it's one of the things actually that um, he doesn't really do sequels he can't be arsed with them. He doesn't like to focus on the same thing, like rehash things. Yes. Which was what they really didn't want to have to do a Halloween. But of course, the producer is just going to see it's making money, make more of the same thing. Um, and the only other film he has done a sequel of is uh, Escape from New York with Kurt Russell. I fucking love that film. And then they did a sequel to that called Escape from LA. And that was the, and he loved working with Kurt Russell. Like he was a big Elvis fan. And in 1979, he either made or he was working in some capacity on an Elvis film with Kurt Russell starring as Elvis. So I was just like, oh, there you go. Um, so the film, as we know, it grossed over like $19 million and holding the box office record for some time. This is Halloween, not the Elvis film. Um, and it was made for, what did I find out? What was it? $300,000? So like, the profit on that, it just absolutely catapulted him. Um, and from 1979 to 1981, he directed films such as The Fog, Halloween 2, Escape from New York. Um, and this kind of paved his way to stardom. And in 1982, he made a handful of independent hits, such as The Thing. Uh, I love that film. And actually, like I said, uh, the films for him to have bombed at this time, he took The Thing bombing the hardest like yeah he loved that he I don't know if he did the score for that or if not I think even if he didn't outright make it he was definitely like helping he was there like he was such a hands-on director that he would write a lot of them and direct it and also if he could help out with the score and he released a lot of albums of his scores and of stuff he's helped like collaborate with so if anyone's interested John Carpenter has a big music scene out there for people um so in the fog and in escape from new york his then wife actress adrian barbo barbo um he starred in in, and they actually have a son together uh they were together i think for about maybe under 10 years but she's a good she's great i like her because she's like badass and she's very well capable i haven't seen the fog fully but she plays like the radio dj yeah and then in Escape from New York, she's she's with one of like the, the gang who are on the island and she's just she's cool. She's so cool. Um, so yeah, in 1981, he made Escape from New York with Kurt Russell and both films 
that and the thing, yeah, like I said, they opened to disappointing reviews and mixed box office results. He later, though, Carpenter later teamed up with Russell again in 1996, like I said, when they did Escape from L.A. So Carpenter then also, he took on one of the literary master horrors, biggest books, where he made a big screen adaptation of Stephen King's The Theme, which was a great film. Because when you think of a film about a, a car coming to life and killing people, you're like, this is bullshit. It is actually a great film. I only recently watched it properly, I think, like last year. And I have to say, I, I put off watching it because I was like, oh, come on, it's a car. It's guys in their car. But no, this is actually proper done, I have to say. If you haven't seen it, which I'm sure many people actually have, but I have to say, I thought it was very good. Yeah. Um, so then he took a break from his usual fare for a science fiction uh, film. Oh, sorry, science fiction romance called Starman uh, with Jeff Bridges. And he actually became really good friends with Jeff Bridges whilst they were making this together. So Bridges plays an alien who takes over a dead man's body and becomes involved with the man's widow. Um, however, as weird as that sounds, it was a critical and commercial success. And Jeff Bridges earned an Academy Award nomination for his work. Um, and oh. then his next, yeah, so Carpenter's then his next substantial project happened in 1986 with Big Trouble in Little China, I love that film, which starred Kurt Russell again. And I think they originally thought it was going to be, oh God, what film was it that they thought it was going to be like? <sighs> Maybe like a Bruce Lee kind of style film. They yeah. wanted, they like, they wanted it to be a real straight film, like proper action. Yes. But Kurt Russell plays such a bumbling idiot in it. Like Kurt Russell has said that he is happy to play any sort of a character, even if it makes him look like a fool, he doesn't care. He'll play that character. And that's exactly what he is in Big Trouble Little China. Um, and it just works so well. And yeah, I have to say, I'm like, Kurt Russell, what can't that man do? I think I think he's great. I think it's brilliant. Between him and Tom Hanks, I'm like, they can't do Please tell me that there's nothing. I know. I don't want anything to come out of the woodwork side either. Please. Thank you. No, because I love him with Goldie Hawn. I'm like, they totally said, like, they don't ever need to get married. They don't need a piece of paper. They freaking love each other so much. And they've, they've their kids from their previous relationships and they're happy as they are and nobody changed them because like obviously we're like, we're going to get married. And they're like, we don't need to. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. Do love you, it. you know, do right by yourself. Anyway, moving on. Just brilliant. So then over the years, Carpenter opted to focus more on short films, including They Live, which had the wrestler, Ready Robbie. Oh, come on. I can do this. What's his surname? Ready Robbie. Damn it. McDell? Is it Robbie McDell? Or is that just his real name and not his wrestling name? Oh, he's a wrestler from the 80s and 90s. Ready Robbie Piper. Yay. <laughs> no one is in this room. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> um, Anyway, that was a great, that has one of the best lines in film. I'm here to kick ass and chew go and I'm all out of go. <laughs> I love that. That's a great film where it's like, it's, it was a great one for like capitalism, where if you wear these sunglasses, you can see that these aliens have come into the world and you can see them like they're, they're people of politicians. They are news reporters. And you see like an advertisement for, um, I know it's, buy this bottle of coke but you put on the sunglasses and it just has the word consume written on like it's it's how they were 
molding humanity to suit themselves whilst they like enter into it looking like humans but they're not they're the aliens and only when he wears a certain sunglasses he can see and he's just like a regular cop before and, and then he notices that like oh they're everywhere so it's just a great film another one of those where it's like it's a bonkers idea but it works really well um, and he also did in the mouth of mammoth he did a apocalypse trilogy starting with the thing in 82 then we had uh the film i'm looking at prince of darkness in 1987 and it finished with uh mouth of madness which was done in 1994 with sam neill and that's a great story as well like it was one of these ones where i forgot how many films he did that i've seen yes and then you're like i really do love him as a director because even though he mainly sticks to a horror genre they're not the same types of films He's not afraid to go nuts with a story. Yes, um, he has very different ones. And he doesn't let failures in the box office turn against him or like turn him against him. Like he, he'll work with a studio or he'll go independent. The man has enough of like, you know, he's got such a good reputation that people will work with him no matter what. Um, and I just oh it's just such a great like it's obviously he doesn't really direct anymore because his man's in his what 70s now but still you know it just he's just such got such gravitas I find um, so as I said he kind of got a little bit turned off with the few box office failures he got turned off of working with studios so in his later career he kind of returned to doing independent films uh, which kind of so he had worked with varying degrees of success but none of the films seem to have matched the or reached the heights he had with Halloween. Yep. Um, like, as I said, The Prince of Darkness and the sci-fi action of They Live, they failed to attract much of an audience. He tried doing a comedy film with 1992 Memoirs of an Invisible Man with Chevy Chase, and that just proved to be a bit of a disappointment. Um, so then there was not, nothing really until 2000 where his career rose with a spark. So he had done Vampires, I don't know, did you ever see that? It's also sometimes called like Vampires de las Mortes. No. Um, and it's got, uh, oh my God, he's a actor. He was also in like video drone, video drone, yeah. I can't remember his name, but it was just, it's it's got one of the um, Baldwin brothers in it. I think it's okay. Daniel. It's a pure 90s, I'm a badass vampire hunter. It's kind of, it really feels a lot like uh, Dawn of the Dead. I think they were all, well, no, even though it was made in 2000, uh, Dawn of the Dead was made in the, not Dawn of the Dead, from Dusk Till Dawn is what I'm trying to say. Um, it's got that kind of a Mexican, it's filmed like all, like a Mexico, Texas, Mexican, Mexico area. So it's that, got that kind of a, like, it's all too hot. It's sand, it's pretty, but it's, it's, it's one of those, like, it's a bad film, but I do love it. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he also did a remake of Village of the Damned. And then he did another so bad, it's good film in my eyes, Ghosts of Mars, which is basically like, it's almost, yeah, it, it pretty much does exactly what it says in 10. It was like, it's based in the future. It's kind of sci-fi heart. You've got Ice Cube. Like, I mean, hello. And it's, yeah, it's there on like, they're soldiers. I'm trying to remember. It's been so long since I've seen it. And then there's also all these ghosts that have inhabited the bodies. And the one from Jackie Brown is in it, who's like, you're playing Jackie Brown. I can't remember her name, but it's all just Patty, Patty something. Fuck it. But yeah, it's brilliant. 
watch all these films of the early 2000s. It's like he just hates uh, chef's kiss of people might not like them, but I feel like as if if you like John Carpenter films, you like it. Um, also, that's what the things that the films for him that failed. This is a point I was going to make earlier on. They all became like cult classics. Like they're, yeah, it's like as if you, yeah, it's like as if he just he was onto something no one appreciated at the time, and the films that just get better every time you watch them. Um, so he told the New York Daily News that he took a self-imposed nearly 10-year break from Hollywood between shooting Ghosts of Mars in 2001 and The Ward in 2010. Um, and so that he needed to like, recharge and regain his love for making movies. But he hasn't really done anything. Like with the new remake of the Halloween films, he's lent his expertise, but he's not fully involved in them. Um, he also had said, I just have like some kind of, he's, he's known for being completely comfortable with filmmakers doing sequels or remakes of his movies, but he has also admitted that he's mostly indifferent to them and usually gets involved for such projects just for the money. Because no, that's like when the Rob Zombie ones were coming out, like by the first film, he was like, do whatever you want to take it and make it yours. You know, I back you 100%. But then he was like recorded being said like later on going, they're all dog shit. He goes, I can't believe you did this to my films. Like, I mean, it's the whatever day you catch him on. You, yeah, you it depends on what he's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'm like, at least he's honest. He's like, hey, I'll make money out of it. You're, you're doing my license. So nah, do whatever you want to do. Um, he also considers it bad luck to wear the hat of the show he's working on. And he won't wear the crew cap until after the film is finished. Okay, there you go. So here's one I thought that you would like. Um, so he directed child actress Kim Richards in his second feature film, Assault on Precinct 17, 13, sorry, in 1976. And he directed Kim's sister, Kyle Richards yes. in his next film, Halloween in 1978. So there you go. Um, he is also a massive fan of video games. He said that his son, Cody Carpenter, got him hooked on them when he was a child. And the two of them would spend time to playing together with uh, early games such as Sonic the Hedgehog. And to this day, he continues playing video games both with his son and independently. And as of 2021, his recent favorites include Assassin's Creed 3, God of War, and Halo Infinity. And he can be frequently seen at the Electric Entertainment Expo or E3, which I have never actually seen E3 being set out fully. I'm like, what the fuck is this? Uh, so he'd go around with his son. So I just think that that's nice. He's also a huge fan of bas- playing basketball and watching the game. Like if there's a game on, he'll have it in his trailer. And he also would always bring like a basketball hoop to every set he's filming on. Love it. And I'm going to finish this off with a quote that he and um, one of his, which I just thought was really nice. In France, I'm an auteur. In Germany, a filmmaker. In Britain, a genre film director. And in the USA, a bum. And I was like, ah, because ah. I don't think he was truly appreciated um, in his home country for his. You're not. Mm. If it was Ireland, they'd be like, look at him, notions. No, pure notions. Now, speaking of notions, um, and I mean this with love, but I just didn't understand this film too much. It is the 1987 film, Prince of Darkness, the second film in his um, Apocalypse trilogy. And I wanted to watch it because it has Donald Pleasance starring in it, who was Dr. Loomis in Halloween. Yes. It's got 
two, I think at least two actors who are in Big Trouble Little China, which would have been done the year beforehand. And I'm quite, because if there's one thing I think I remember reading up on this beforehand is that John Carpenter, instead of like getting big name actors and actresses, he loves getting character actors because he's like, I can get so much out of them and then I can get them to be in a later film and get them back in again. Um, so I just thought that it was nice that he brings his people back. But so towards the end, I was like, Donald Pleasance's character is a bit of a dick and a coward. <laughs> he's a douche. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is a supernatural horror film, but... I found it was very, not sci-fi, well, sci-fi-ish, but very scientific. And that's what got me. That's what confused the shit out of me is stuff that they were talking about. I'm like, what? And it, it's just going to blow your mind. Um, so basically there are professors and students as well as a mystery surrounding a local church. Um, Professor Howard Barak, who's played by Victor Wong, who... The first thing I saw him in was three ninjas films from the early 90s. Oh. If you if you look him up like um Victor Wong, you'll just see that face and you're like, oh, I've seen him as an actor in can't remember, but you know, like you would have seen him. And um, so this is all based in LA. So Victor, so pr- the professor, he is a professor of quantum physics. Okay. And uh, so basically Donald Pleasance comes to him, he's a Catholic priest, and he needs him and some of his students to both translate a text that's written in multiple languages. And then there's this green swirling liquid, which is the embodiment of the anti-god, a.k.a. Satan and his son. Or, yeah, the devil and Satan is his son and Satan's trying to get back to release him. I don't... Oh yeah, it's something to do with mirrors. The devil is trapped, or like the, the actual devil is trapped in a like it's kind of like in Get Out, where when you fall down into the whatever, when you get sucked in and you look up yeah. and it's like looking through a mirror. So he's trapped in like a mirror world, and Satan is trapped into the green goo, and he needs to be released so he can form a physical body to find a mirror and bring his dad out. And Jesus is also a time traveling alien, and I'll get into this because it lost me on a lot of things. Again, it's a completely original idea, but it just didn't work for me. Yeah. Um. So Donald Pleasance comes in and he finds a key that some priest in the opening thing, some priest dies. He gets his key, and it's this like rundown, dilapidated church. But there's this basement area, and this is where holds the swirling green goo, and so he's like. What the fuck's going on? I need help, but this looks a bit more sciencey. So he goes straight to the local college to like get help from a physicist. I'm like, how did you know that that's anyway? Oh, um, so this the priest who had died who had the key is from the Brotherhood of Sleep, which take care of the church since the beginning of time. And it's an order who communicates through dreams. Um, and apparently. And um, the main plot about the film being about the Brotherhood of Sleep is loosely inspired by H.P. Lovecraft's work with his Cthulhu mythos, which I had no idea about. And um, so as the priest is investigating it, he gets in touch with the professor. They have around about 13 academics who are all students in the college. And then two of the main characters in it are Brian and Catherine. And the guy who plays Brian, it's like 
because it was a 1987 film it's mullets everywhere but brian has like you know the just the mustache big mustache and i thought he looked a little creepy because he's basically he spots Catherine around campus and he's like mm, she's nice but he just he's like looking at her from afar and in my mind i'm like going fucking stalking her and I'm then eventually <laughs> i know and as a like if this guy wasn't you know, he, I'm sure he's, he's good looking, he's handsome, whatever, he just doesn't do for me. But, you know, like, if this guy was, like, some way look conventionally ugly, you'd be, like, bare-macing him in the face and running for your life. But no, it's, he's like, oh, I've, I've seen your rain, you're in some of my classes. And then after a couple of days together of, like, going out for coffee and whatever, they bang. And then <laughs> they, they bang. They bang, and it's beautiful, I'm sure. Um. But yeah, they're two of the academics. Again, like they're they're all working on their doctorates. They're told if they go in and spend a weekend with this church helping out the, the priests that they like, it'll go towards points and credits towards their PhD. So there's a few other people who are with them. Um, so yeah, they're yeah, one of the girls and she's like a whiz on deciphering um, languages because it's made, the text is made up of a few different languages. So she's working on that. And then you have Catherine, the poor girl who was stalked into loving this man. She's like great at equations. So there's like, and she's like, these equations, they're, they're still, you know, this couldn't be 2000 years old. And then she's like, it's, it's equations I haven't even come up with yet. Um, so yeah, the cylinder is the liquid embodiment of Satan. And oh yeah, so that they found it was just while they were uh, translating the text that Jesus was a space traveler and he tra- and he was executed due to heresy after he tried to warn the people of earth about this exact vessel in which satan was locked up and that basically the church had turned the devil and satan into like supernatural beings or demons and stuff like that to make it easier for us to comprehend the fact that they were not like things that, that were living on this world before humans were and that jesus you know he wasn't a time traveling alien in a human form he was just a man who was executed for all of us you know and donald pleasance to his credit like to the, the priest is like they lied to us they lied for so long like they made us believe that all these different demons and you know it was just basically like they're trying to say that the bible was written in a way like the, the catholic and christian christianity was made just so that people this brotherhood could be made to protect this vial or the cylinder of the green goo um and that they knew basically that when jesus was trying to tell people he was like we don't have the technology now because i've come from the future and i've gone too far and you people can't help me but there'll be people in the future who will have science and then they'll be able to help so <laughs> i was just like what going why it's like what what is happening I I know and I was like I'm too far into this because uh, I was going to have to like I was either was like this or the fog and I was like I kind of was like I know the fog I've watched a bit of it or I must have watched it when I was younger and I was like I just wanted to hit up a film I'd never seen and I once I saw that like Donald Pleasance was playing a priest another in another like John Carpenter film I'm like oh, I'll totally watch this um so the the liquid Satan <sighs> can't be it has to be unlocked from like the inside so no one can get it like they were saying some radiologist who was there a radiographer was there saying like the carbon dating on the cylinder is millenniums old and you're like what and but then some of the liquid escapes from the cylinder and it gets the radiographer 
I think her name is Susan. And then it's like, she goes, wah, it comes out of her mouth into someone else's mouth. And you can totally tell, like, there's a tube at the side of her face, just like throwing that out. <laughs> um, but uh, like, and, and it's basically, they all just like vomit this liquid on each other and it turns them into hosts, not hosts, but like slaves, I suppose. Oh, Alice Cooper is in this as well. Oh. And he plays, yeah, he plays like a homeless guy. And because what happens is, like you can tell maybe the power of liquid Satan's getting stronger. So like he can, like he has telekinetic powers. And so he's starting to, I don't know why homeless people, no one else follows him, but all these homeless people just start to congregate outside the church. And then anyone who tries to leave whilst they're in there over the weekend, get killed so um yeah so there's a lot of homeless people outside Alice Cooper is one of them and then the people inside like a lot of them are just trying to leave and like I said every time they leave it's either the possessed people kill them or the homeless people who are basically also possessed in some way or their minds are being taken over they all kill them so it kind of the numbers start to whittle down um and According, like I said, I am following someone's breakdown of this from marvelousvideos.com because I couldn't wrap my head around this and I couldn't even take notes because I didn't know how to form a sentence about what was happening. Um, so yeah, this was the theory of what's happening in that basement. Um, Satan is the child of the anti-God from the mirror world. And he, so there's a communication through dreams so anyone who stays in that church, once you fall asleep, you get a dream. And it's basically, it's actually John Carpenter himself speaking, but it's, you don't get the full part of the dream until like the end of the film, but it's basically saying, we are communicating with you through your dreams because your um, technology hasn't advanced. And this is a warning for, and it all kind of cuts out, but you see someone at the front of the church, like just standing there. Um, and so it's basically like, there from like thousands of years ago this same dream would have been projected through to anyone who was there but no one could understand what it was that they were trying to say because again they didn't have technology and you still I still don't really understand what it was because again they don't say we don't get it because <laughs> they don't say the full part of the dream until the very end so you're you're obviously you're only getting snippets of it um so they all end up having the same dream um and Brian realized this is this is another thing that really lost me. Uh, he comes to realize that this dream that's happening for everybody that they're having could be due to a tachyon particle sent as a warning from the future here. And a tachyon is basically a theoretical subatomic particle that can travel faster than the speed of light. And because nothing has been known to be capable of moving faster than light, tachyons could really be moving back in time and might well be used to send a message from one time to another in order to alert others about a specific event. Thank you, website. I paused at this stage of the film and I went up to get a cup of tea because I was like, I'm out. I'm fucking out. I'm done. Yeah. Um, actually, a lot of this film, the university students the, that they were doing, it was filmed in the University of California where John Carpenter was a student of. So um, I also like that he was, I wonder also if he was like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. I used to go here, let me film here. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah. Um, so then the cylinder itself splits open and all the water pumps into a girl called Kelly, who's one of Catherine's friends. And she got like this mark on her. She hit a machine when she was looking at the swirly green fluid earlier on. 
and she gets like a bruise the bruise then forms like a mark she's like it's just a bruise and I'm like there's like a weird symbol on her arm and I'm like as someone who has bruises almost all the time I'm like that ain't right for a bruise but anyway she's wrecked she's lying down this green liquid thing just like splits and goes right into her mouth and basically Ew. she ends up becoming like a host and like throughout the next like 20 minutes it's like a bacteria taking over her body and then she becomes it's like it's it's working its way into her system and then she becomes satan uh, and just with like a weird raspy voice and goes around going daddy you're looking into like a little compact mirror for makeup trying to put her hand in together and then realizes it's too small <laughs> so she has to go find a full in mirror so she can take her dad out um, <laughs> it's just it's it's a lot um at this stage now, a load of people have been possessed and there's just the professor, a random guy who I know is going to die because he doesn't get to say much. And um, yeah, the professor, Catherine O'Brien and some guy whose name I forget, who was also in Big Trouble Little China. Um, they're, they're all like separated into rooms and they're trying to like all meet back together. But they know that if they go out to the possessed people, they're just going to kill them. And so then we have Kelly, also Satan now, she finds like Donald Pleasance as the priest. This is where I was like, oh, you're a dick. He noped out of it. Like this guy brought everyone in. And when he sees like people are dying, he goes and runs away and he tries to hide. And he hides in a room which actually happens to have a full length mirror. So he witnesses Kelly or Satan now, like putting her hand through and pulling out like this, like a devil hoof of you know like red skin black nails kind of thing of a hand out and uh he like he finds an axe and an all he tries to cut off the hand kelly's hand but another hand then pops right back out he decapitates her but then she pulls the head back on and pop it comes right back on and uh catherine then magnanimously sees that brian is fighting with one of the possessed people and it's either save him or stop Satan from bringing the anti-god back into this world and so basically again it reminded me a lot of Get Out and I wonder did Jordan Peele watch this film uh, Catherine basically rugby tackles Kelly and herself and Kelly fall into the mirror world uh, just as so the devil is still trapped there just at the same time that the priest throws the axe into the mirror severing Catherine's way of getting back to the reality and so brian is like you goddamn bastard i just started sleeping with her we could have been something beautiful um <laughs> but like fucking don mcpleasant he's like after they get rescued because then the homeless people are like oh there's no more satan who can like control our mind we're all just going to go back to where we were from and the possessed people remain dead and um, so obviously they were killed to become possessed or, or something died when they were possessed or whatever. But uh, so you just got like the professor, Brian and the priest and Donald Pleasance is like, I did it. I got rid of them. And I'm like, it was a group effort there, you know. Yeah, um, just you, Donald, don't be a dick. I know. I was just like, he ran away. He made sure that they couldn't even try and rescue Catherine before he smashed the fucking mirror. Um, so then we have like just this little scene of Brian, he's asleep in bed. And then there's like, is Catherine in bed beside him? But she's got like the possessed looking skin that Kelly had. And then he wakes back up again.
but it prompts him to go to a mirror and put his hand up against it. Like, could he maybe try and pull Catherine back? But then that's where the film ends. And basically, yeah, we then get to see the very end of it. And it, I don't think it's in this. Oh, yeah. So basically, we then get at the very end of, of the film. Like we see that in the video, the person in their dream, the dream sequence that they're having, the person that was being hidden was actually Catherine. And I'm like, no, it's like scream all over again. How can, you know, this small person be ghost face? Um, yeah. But basically I'm like, that wasn't Catherine all along because that was definitely a taller person. But anyway, so what they are transmitting is this is not a dream, not a dream. We are using your brain's electrical system as a receiver. We are unable to transmit through conscious neural interference. You are receiving this broadcast as a dream. We are transmitting from year 1999, uh, 12 years before the film, you know, 12 years into the future, <laughs> the great future of 1999, very wise UK of them. Uh, you are receiving this broadcast in order to alter the events you are seeing. Our technology has not developed a transmitter strong enough to reach your conscious state of awareness. But this is not a dream. You are seeing what is actually occurred, occurring for the purpose of causality violation. Okay. Yeah. Um, so basically, obviously, they're trying to, these guys were trying to warn scientists from the year 1919, or they're scientists from the year 1999 who have forever been trying to warn people, but they only kind of like can make sense of it in 1987. So basically, they're trying to stop the anti-God from rising and coming into the world. Um, it's, so it's kind of like, did they do it? Did they stop it? Or, you know, because Brian saw like the nightmare version of Catherine, you're kind of like, did they do what was needed to be done? It kind of leaves it a little bit like vague on the ending. Um, people are saying that it's like, it's a really spooky film and it was a great cult classic and it was a cool horror film. And I'm just like, it didn't scare me. It confused me. Um, yes. And it's a proper, like you can tell, like, so this is one, it was an independently made film by John Carpenter. He went back to shoestring budget. He wrote and directed it. I don't know if he did the score, but it was very, I think he did actually. It's a very Carpenter score. Okay. Um, like stripped down, but like constant music throughout the whole film. Uh, so I wouldn't say I didn't like it I just didn't understand a lot of it like I feel like it's I, and, and you know I wonder if someone who is into science and quantum physics if that's even what it was or astrophysics would they be like this is a bastardization of what we're doing you know like I wonder if they would lose out on both situations yeah but I feel like if you went in just looking for your regular run-of-the-mill horror you'd be a bit like what I came here on a Friday night to watch a film um yeah um very smart idea though uh, also like for possession films and for like the devil trying to make its way back into the world i felt that this was one of the most original ideas i'd come across in our day and age now you know like with the way films are just rehashes of other things like no one has tried to do a proper science version yeah of a way that the devil could come back and and like calling jesus is a space traveling alien in the human guys i was like genius um but well, yeah really, isn't that just like that christmas song and it's like a spaceman came traveling in a ship from afar 
Would like <gasps> you the head. Da, 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 da. I'm like, man, yes. Oh my god. Who's man watch that film? What's the name of that song? I'm like wondering what year did it come out? It was like chicken and the egg situation. Oh, let's see. Is it Christa Berg, isn't it? I have a feeling it is, but I also have been very wrong about this before. Oh yeah, yeah. A space on traveling through song by Chris DeBerg. Uh year, 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 year. Came traveling from a ship. From a okay, I need a year. It's it's just giving me lyrics. People, this is what this is how good we are to you now, doing this right here, right 1967. now. 1967. Oh, yeah. I am gonna say. Considering this was made in '87, John L. Johnny C was listening to this song and he was like, "Oh my God, could you imagine if Jesus was playing?" Yeah, you like, how could I make this work? Miss time, horror movies and wine. Mm-mm. Yeah, see, that's it. Yeah, there's always a sneak little influence all around there. There's nods here and there. See, this is it. This is it. He's all and about I love how, work. <laughs> I love how you managed to make this about Christmas. Thank it's, you. It's so you, and I'm very proud of you. And also, it does make sense. It does. It truly does. Yeah. So, Christa Berg has a hand in a John Carpenter film. There you go. That's <laughs> where his royalties. We've decided that this is 100% true. Yeah. Yeah. Don't ask me any follow up questions. Yes. Um, if you're into the proper science of sci fi films and also supernatural horror, which is really a kind of a mishmash I never would have put together give this film a watch um also I'd be really curious if like I'm not saying of any of our five listeners if any of them are into like proper science but if anyone was I'd be interested in their take on the film yeah absolutely or if you're not even a sciencey person and you just want to tell us like also am I alone in being so confused about the film uh, an hour and 40 minutes of pure confusion someone message us please please message me I'm yeah. so confused. I know a guy who did like rocket science in college. Fair play. He was like proper smart. I just wonder, like, you know, like when you've got like Neil deGrasse Tyson and he watches like Interstellar and he gives his two cents on that. And you're just like, you know, what would just your run of the mill rocket scientist guy? Yeah. Well, what do you think about this? Yeah. Just sit down and watch this old horror movie for me, please. Yeah. So what director did you do your deep dive on? Okay, so I'm going to say deep dive, possibly stretch for Grace, but I am. this director once said that he never wanted to be a horror movie director. He just wanted to make films, not specifically horror films. He just wanted to make movies. Ooh. He is like dubbed the like grandfather of gore. He's like, he is, he's, he's Johnny Carpenter. He's like, he's, he's one of the names within um, her. So Wesley Earl Craven was born in August 1939 in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, Funny enough, we have one thing in common. His dad left when he was three. Um, I was like, for the dick dads. Like, you know, I was like, oh my God, maybe we're the same person. Um, But he just seems to be a lot more driven than I. (laughs) Hey, look. 
Um, it was the style of the time for him, I'm sure. Fuck, you know. Um, basically, uh, yeah, so he his dad left when he was three. His dad then actually died at four. Um, and obviously not when his dad was four, because that would be impossible when um, Wes Craven was four. Uh, so his dad died when he was four. And then after, after this, his mom was converted over to like evangelical Christian. Mm. And upbringing was quite strict um, in the sense that he actually, they weren't allowed to watch movies or anything, bar Disney movies, because Disney movies were fine. Um, so he didn't have this like love or knowledge of films growing up, like which was like such a stark like difference to when you were saying like John Carpenter was there at nine making these movies. Mm. Wes Craven wasn't wasn't allowed to go to the cinema. With <laughs> younger, it's very much like Footloose. Like you're not like music. You're not like dancing. Anything like that. He kind of went on to say later on in his life that he wished he had never really mentioned anything about his upbringing because if you think about it, that um, it's off, it's just focused on too much. He was raised in a very religious period and he went to a high school with Catholics who went to mass um, all the time and wore crosses around their necks. But religion is a normal part of a lot of, of Americans' lives. Which I suppose, like, I was kind of like the amount of times we kind of harp back to, like, the fact that we went to Catholic school and that, like, you know, you were mm. an altar girl and we yeah. did all these things. And, like, religion is not something that really plays anything within our lives, only for the fact that we grew up in a very Catholic Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, like, in a way, it's exactly the same thing. He just grew up in a household where that was the thing and he lived around people where that was also the thing he pulls a lot of stuff from um kind of like true stories and like scenarios that he's had as a child um but basically when he was um growing up because he didn't have the influence of movies his a lot of his influence came from literature um and he really uh, he was really inspired by books and stuff like that um, so when he went to college, he was the um, editor of the college magazine and he published two inappropriate articles. Um, and because of that, it was actually cancelled for the rest of the year and it came back the next year without him in charge. And beside that note, I just wrote, lol. <laughs> <laughs> he went on to teach in Westminster in Clarkstown, New York. And he became the advisor for um, the film club. Like basically like these students came up to him and were like, hey, how are you? What's the crack? Um, uh, will you be the advisor for a film club? And he knew very little about it, but he was like, yeah, go on, fuck it, go on, we'll do it. Um, and they made a couple of movies and they showed them um, in, in a kind of, what do you call it? Um, in a film festival, like a local one, do you know? And it cost them $300 to make and they made three times what they had done. So they were, they did very well. Or actually I was watching another. So this, this came from, majority of this came from The Man and His Nightmares, which is a book about Wes Craven. Again, oh. we all know, audible. I did not sit down and read. It didn't happen, people. 
it's actually a really good book and the guy who narrates it has a lovely voice so I would highly recommend it to you yeah. one thing I will say is um I didn't actually go into his um kind of his personal life in in terms of his family but he was married he does have kids he did leave a couple of wives um so I don't know the ins and outs of that I don't want to be kind of like you know I, I don't know that side of his life so. I decided to also yeah not look into yeah. that side of a person it was more like career was what I was yeah. going for yeah so I don't want to kind of be like you know because I don't know what involvement in his kid's life he had after he left so I'm just going to leave that there but I am not pretending it didn't happen just in case mm. they're wondering I'm very much aware that he had he had um one two and three wives I think um so he he went on and he was making these films with the students they were doing quite well like they were doing it real kind of like kind of like just guerrilla style whatever way they could do it like they do it on a whatever camera they could get their hands on they'd edit it it would be like painstaking the dean of the college came to him and was like look you need to like cop on and actually start writing your thesis and start like producing stuff and publishing stuff like rather than like flaffing basically flaffing around with these students and doing your filming mm. and he was like yeah cool thanks um I quit so <laughs> he quit that job and he became a delivery man and a taxi driver um, so that he could kind of fund working um, and learning as well. So he worked with a film, filmmaker who couldn't actually, um, he couldn't pay him. But what he did was he taught him how to like edit and stuff like that. And it was kind of like, this is something that you will be able to use in any studio and it will really stand to you. And it really did. So with the whole thing of, you know, him not actually having seen many movies, he, he, he wasn't a horror fan. He didn't really know much about horror. And the only horror movie he had seen before the movie that he would release as his kind of debut film, which is kind of like one of the most famously like exploitive horror movies ever was uh, Night of the Living Dead. And um, that was the only horror movie he had ever seen before he made Last House on the Left. The last oh, I yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he was exploring the sickness associated with Vietnam. It was fascinating to take characters who killed and had done something utterly reprehensible and make them worry about being dressed properly for dinner and who was going to sleep with who. Um, this was around the same time of like the summer of love, Woodstock was happening, but around the same time of Woodstock, two weeks before the Manson murders had just happened. And there was also this other concert that happened where quite a lot of people died. So it was kind of starting to turn. And after the summer of love and Woodstock followed the year of hate in 1970 where there was just this like really bad feeling there was a the continue of like the Vietnam War and uh, the, the kind of hippie movement had finished mm. was quite kind of well represented in 
last house on the left. Um, John, John Carpenter, not John Carpenter. Wes Craven, it's not just me. Yeah, Wes Craven was asked, um, was Mary meant to be the portrayal of the end of the hippie era? And he said, like, was she or was she just completely innocent and just didn't know any better? Um, the thing with, uh, with Last House on the Left was the fact that these people looked like hippies they were the people that you were able to go to and it was like it was this thing of starting where you would have been able to go up to somebody and been like hey man they'd be like hey man you'd be like any drugs and they'd be like yeah cool but now you were in this time where people looked like they were those really cool hippie guys but they were actually like quite violent criminals and they were quite violent um like drug dealers so you really couldn't go up and just be like hey got any pot and they'd be like man of course they'd be like yeah come in here and I'm gonna kill you yeah or beat the shit out of you so for anybody who doesn't know the whole backstory to or the the kind of synopsis of last times and left uh, there is two girls Mary is the main girl she is um I think 17 and she's going to her first concert um her parents are kind of like giving her a little bit of independence. She's quite innocent um, in the sense that she's just a good girl going out, having a bit of fun. I kind of feel like like similar to the way we would have been. Mm. Um, the, the, the funny thing is, and it's kind of, it goes back to this whole thing of like, um, like John Carpenter, when he was like, oh, I never meant it to be a thing of like Laurie Strode was the only one who didn't have sex. And then it turned out to be this. But they actually do kind of point out that the only time that it starts to get sinister is when the girls try something, try to do something illegal. So they try and get pot from somebody. And they do as well note that this is quite an innocent sin in a way that they are committing. Do you know what I mean? Like pot isn't going to be like the be all and end all of somebody. Yeah. Um, and that like their punishment like really outweighs the crime. So they're very violently attacked and raped um, and killed. Um, and the film then follows kind of Mary... Correct me if I'm wrong, Amy. Mary mm-hmm. gets home, doesn't she? Uh, no, you're thinking of the remake. Mary, oh, okay. so they Mary, find her. I, I am yeah. the remake. Because I was like, I'm sure I thought she did. So it's just that they arrive to the house of the parents and they realize that the kind of the younger guy is wearing the necklace that Mary was wearing. I think so her body washes up. Yeah, so they know that something has happened. Then they kind of realize that these guys are involved because he has the necklace on. And mm-hmm. it basically is like this unbelievable revenge movie. John Carpenter had come out to say that like he he did this with the producer in a way that they had seen violence uh, being portrayed in real life. And they hadn't seen violence being portrayed like this in movies. It was kind of this like, you know, made for a movie violence and he was like this is what we wanted to do and they were like picked apart for this movie yeah one of the the, the, it had a couple of different taglines there was one about something like i didn't get it at all 
Um, one was don't trust anyone over 30, <sighs> which was kind of this whole thing, like this, this ideolo- ideology that they had, like as kind of like hippies and young people. And it was like, don't like they're way too old and blah, blah, blah. And they were saying like when this was released, like Wes Craven was 33. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm 33 now. (laughs) (laughs) What the fuck? Um, And then repeat to yourself, it's only a movie. It's only a movie. So this was kind of like the really like iconic thing Mm. around Last House on the Left. Quite similar to uh, John Carpenter. When he went on to make the next movies, they weren't as well received as well. Um, And at the time and I think this is something that I was like god it's amazing that like when I found Wes Craven it was the whole kind of like scream era and stuff like that whereas like and we've quite openly spoken about how we hate the exploitation and the Mm. over uh, violence and sexualization of women and it was amazing to kind of like learn and to know that he kind of created the, the movie that people genuinely were like, this is fucking horrific. Like Roger, Roger Ebert, like really lambasted it, like it just wasn't received very well. Again, has become like this cult classic. It's also amazing because we watched it as part of our 100 horror movies. And it, it, it's crazy to think that I watched it and I went, oh my God, that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Because it Mm. actually doesn't show as much as I thought it would. And possibly it's because of the remake. The remake was actually quite graphic and quite violent. I know we watched the remake again together, I think. And like we just were like, okay, that part is coming up. We're going to fast forward through it. Either that or I watched it with Warren and I was like, look, we just need to I think you did, but I do know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's a very graphic film and it's like it's amazing how they took something that was like people were like this is the worst thing we've ever seen and they like, they made it more and I was like oh I probably wait till I show you yeah and so Wes Craven actually continued working in movies but it, at the time there was a lot of movies that were almost like x-rated movies I am um, coming to the cinema and it was a lot within the guise of horror movies. And um, so it was kind of like, if they could kind of get, for want of a better word, nudie films, um, it was that they were able to do it through this, like this horror kind of lens. So he actually worked on quite a few movies like that, um, which I just was kind of like, it's, it's mad that like, that would be the genre that I would kind of be like, oh, I don't want to touch, I don't want to go near. Mm-hmm. Yet his later work and actually the, the work I saw from the start, like I, I was never like, I was never affected to the point where I felt violated as well, where there are many movies I have watched and kind of gone, oh yeah, I actually need a couple of days to, to process this. And I, I don't know if I can really, you know, there's there's a couple of themes in movies that we'll actually just go, do you know, we won't, that's fine. We don't mm-hmm. need to. So the next kind of big movie that he went on to do was um, The Hills of Ice. Oh, there were a couple of sequels to this movie and it was, um, they were like Italian movies. Um, oh. 
yeah I thought that was quite interesting and then uh, he went on to do the hills of eyes and this is actually a Wes Craven movie I've never seen but on the back of you Emer, where you were like oh. do not watch that movie oh. You don't want to see it. And-, and again, what I watched was the remake, but I think he also directed the remake. Yeah, so I, I've always just kind of left it. I was like, no, don't need to see it. It's again based on kind of that um, legend of the Sonny Beam family, um, mm. this ancestral family, cannibalism. But as far as I'm aware from Emer's um, kind of warning, there, there's a bit of sexual assault and by a bit, and sure it's quite horrific. Um, so I left that aside. Um, at a at a film festival, he he actually sorry not at a film festival. Um, at a special screening of uh, Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino had said to uh, had said that Res, Wes Craven's uh, Last House on the Left was um, a big inspiration to him. And it was kind of a thought that, you know, when can a movie go too far? And he was like, if he was able to do Last Times on the Left, I can do anything I want. And the the kind of the violence that is seen in Reservoir Dogs, he was like, I can keep going. It's totally fine. Funny enough, later on, Wes Craven went on to say that was actually a movie that he had to leave because he felt that the, the, the director um, at a certain point of the film was just getting off on the violence. Yeah, I, I think when he found out that Wes Craven left, he was like, woohoo, that's my my life goal to be met. But that's it. It's kind of like I'd say he was like the person that I was like, okay, he he did the ceiling of how bad is bad and he had to leave my movie. Mm, so I'd yeah. say he was just like, fuck, this is brilliant. So he went on to do um, another couple of movies and um, he never really found the kind of the, I suppose, the, the success that he was looking for. He said there were a couple of times that he was like, oh, this is it now. This is it. But then they'd come out and it would just be like, no, absolutely not. So then came along Freddie. Um, so he said mm. he had read a news article and it was about this um, to, this young boy who came over from Colombia with his um, with his family and um, or is it up from Colombia? Uh, but anyway, he was now in the US. Oh, sorry, Cambodia. He was now in the US and he was having really difficulty sleeping because he was having really, really bad nightmares. And his family were like, look, they're nightmares. It's fine. Nothing can get you. It's absolutely fine. Uh, they went to the doctor. They got him sleeping tablets. They weren't working. It actually turned out that he was too scared to take the sleeping tablets. So he wasn't taking them. He was watching a movie one night and he fell asleep. So he was like, uh, the parents brought him up to bed. Then a little while later, they heard something. They went into his room. He was like thrashing, writhing around the bed. And a couple of minutes later, he was dead. Warren then turned around and was like, oh, great, great. So it's a true story. Fantastic. <laughs> so Wes Craven actually said that he had read a couple of different articles similar to that. Um, so this is where the idea of kind of the dream um, monster came from. He also, in the book, um, there was also this um, 
kind of story that one night as a child Wes woke up to a noise and he looked out the window and there was a man with a jumper and a hat looking back at him and he kind of gave him this menacing look and they were living in an apartment complex and he went into the the apartment complex and like he woke his brother up and he was like oh my god um there's somebody here they're coming to get us so they actually went to look for him and they never found him and he was like it was just this guy like getting off and being like scaring two young people and then freddie Krueger was actually named after a boy he used to get the papers in the same place that wes craven would and he used to beat him up the whole time oh my god i was just like imagine being that guy as an adult and being like "Oh, oh shit do I get royalties for this? I'm a dick. Yeah. I have. My my dickishness has spawned a franchise of films. It has, like, really preceded me. Um, so he went on to create Freddy Krueger, um, A Nightmare on Allen Street. And he was trying to think of, like, the most terrifying thing that you can think of. Um, and he was like, there were chainsaws, there were like knives, there were like, what was it? And he was like, he, he kind of went back to his like academic side. And he said that he started to think, like, where did it all start? And he was like, the claws, like, where, you know, cavemen would be in these like their caves and these like animals would just put the claw around and then he was like I tried to put it on the most normal thing that you could put it on so I put them onto the hands Mm. so he wrote Nightmare on Elm Street he put it out to a few people people were like this is tripe like this is never going to go anywhere like this is really bad and he got really upset about it obviously so for three years he was trying to sell it and then it was bought and um, it became the phenomenon that it is. He was only involved in the first one, and then he didn't come back until Wes uh, Craven's a new, like a new nightmare, which was kind of almost like a an imagining of a making of the movie with Freddie also involved, and Wes Craven is in that as well, so playing himself. So it's this really kind of cool, different kind of way of doing it. Mm. Um, he went on then to well not not exactly just straight after but his next huge success was Scream when he was approached with Scream um, there one of his assistants or somebody who was working with him came up to him and was like oh my god I'm just after getting this um, script you need to read it we have to do it there's going to be a bit more and um, he was like, no bother, I, but I don't want to do it. I'm not doing horror anymore. It's not my thing. So, ah. yeah, <laughs> I know. They came to him again and he was like, no, 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 I'm not doing it. And then uh, the Weinstein brothers came to him and they were like, look, come here. Like, we really think you should and we'll, we'll allow you to do something else. It's totally fine. And he was like, right, okay. So he did it. But he, he was worried that he would get this karma if he went back to, he just felt that the opening scene with Drew Barrymore was so violent that he was going back to his last house from the last days and that it was just going to be karma for him and this was going to be the end of him. Uh, little did he know it would like absolutely blow him up again. So he said that as well, he didn't want to kind of be that person who like was scared away from something and didn't do it. 
this was all in a um, documentary on YouTube that I was watching. And I think it's like the masters of, let me get the title of it. Um, sorry if this plays. So master of cinema. And it was for Wes Craven. So that documentary is absolutely brilliant as well. So he talks about the fact that he just was quite, you know, worried about doing this. Um, then the anyone he seems to have worked with just seems to be like, you just expect him to be like terrifying. Like he makes all these really scary movies, but he's just so nice. They've said that he's like, he's quite like, he knows what he wants to do, but he does it in such a lovely way. And he's so calm about it. And I'm kind of like, I just want to be Wes Craven. He just seems like such a nice kind of force and like this calming kind of like, yeah, cool. And after Scream, he, the Scream, um, he did this movie with Meryl Streep about a, a woman who was a teacher and she, her husband leaves her with uh, young kids and she goes on to like the projects and she teaches uh, violin and she, and Meryl Streep was kind of like, I had never, you know, seen any of his movies. I'm not into horror at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, she said that her son was like, no, he's really good. And she was like, if you're a good storyteller, you're a good storyteller. Do you know, it doesn't really matter what genre you're doing. So he, yeah. he was allowed to do this within the kind of dimensions um, universe. And he, I just think like he, he, he passed away in 2015, but his, just, his legacy just seems to be of this like, pure like legend within this genre that he knew so little about but he did so well in and it seems to be because he was just a really nice person and like incredibly talent talented and very hard working of course but um anyone he works with just seems to have had such a lovely experience with him and which can be such a like a rare thing and especially with like the fact that he was working with shithead Weinstein like it just nearly gives me a little bit of like hope that it was kind of like at least he was there I don't know Mm. but he definitely I think because he was kind of like the director of the movies that really got me into her and he has like a massive massive place in my heart and Mm -hmm. Um, the movie that I did, right, <laughs> I was going to do Cursed. And then when I put it on, I was like, oh, I've done this already. <laughs> I, was like, I can't do this again. So I went through kind of like the back catalog. And actually, there's one with um, Bill Pullman that um, I, it, and it's about, and this this is something as well. Again, I ha- I'd have to see it to see what way it was actually done. I don't want to take the word on somebody, but they were saying that it was um it was kind of about zombies and voodoo, and I was like, ooh, ooh. oh, serpent, yes, serpent in the rainbow or something. Yeah, yeah, something like that. And but he kind of went at it as like a religion, and then he was talking about like zombies are actually like it's it's an actual medical thing. Do you know what I mean? It's not this whole, but it, 
if I had actually watched the documentary before having watched the movie that I watched, I would have done that movie. Ah. It looks very interesting. And I'd love to see what way it was kind of done. Do you know what I mean? Because obviously it's like you don't want it to be done in a way that's completely exploiting something. um, Yes. For the sake of it. So the movie that I did is (laughs) Wes Craven Presents Dracula (laughs) 2000. I love that film. It's such a part of shite, but it's amazing. It's so good. So bad. Do you know what? I was like watching it and I was like, how can no more than Halloween three with a really hammy Irish accent? And then you go, that guy's Irish. The terrible hammy British accents of like the two kind of main characters, like the young kind of like antique stealer and Mm -hmm. the, the main girl like both English but it was really oh, like yeah. all right governor are you a vampire now it's spot a tea and I was like what is happening why does this feel like it's all like majorly overdubbed but I'm also loving it it was bonkers and bananas but the mad thing was right this actually just shows <laughs> How much if somebody tells me something, I'll be like, I totally believe that. So I was like, oh, it's got Wes Craven written all over it. Like, it's real kind of like 90s, even though it's Dracula 2000. Um, it was like, you know, it just kind of reminded me of like the teenage kind of slashers and stuff. And I was like, he can even do it. Like, what can't you do? He's doing vampire movies. And then I was like, he didn't do this. Although he did do his... A vampire movie with Eddie Murphy. But anyway. Oh, yeah. So yeah. how? what was his influence on this film? Like, when they say present, what do they mean? Like, he was administrative. It was, like, creative, really. That's all. Like, he, did, he had an executive producer title, but he actually had nothing to do with it, really. It's, it's ah. my, my only Google search about it, so that might actually be a load of tripe as well. But, yeah, look, it... it it gives you a stellar cast, Emer, like stellar. So mm. you have train spottings. Um, and one of my favorite movies, who again has Matthew Lillard, but hackers. So yeah. Johnny Lee Miller is in that, and he's in train spotting, and he's in this with his hammy British real accent. Um, then you have Justine Waddle, who is a South African British actress, you'd you'd recognize her again me as book you have christopher Plummer, jennifer esposito who's just a ride sean patrick thomas who is from he was in cruel intentions he was in save the last yes actually yeah he was in one of the halloweens like he's he's pretty amazing uh they have dirty bastard masterson in there thankfully gets a pretty horrific death um you have Lycan Munro which 100% I have butchered his name there but he was at he was at For Love of Horror when we were there and he's part of the scary movie franchise ah. you also have Vitamin C you remember Vitamin C Africa. oh yeah I was like how do I know that name and Dracula 
only until I actually Googled who was in this movie did I go, Do oh, not know. Is Jared Butler. Are we Jared Butler? Do the proper Scottish <laughs> accent? The only film I think he gets to have is actual Scottish accent. I, I, that I, it didn't even register with me that he had an accent at all. It is just bananas. So it basically starts off um, like a Christopher Plummer who plays Van Helsing or like a version of him um, is like this kind of like antiques collector but really he's actually just a vampire hunter but he needs all the stuff he can get. Uh, his assistant Simon Shepard and um, his other assistant well I suppose more secretary um, Selena are in like the big mansion place that they live. Somebody is coming in to um, break in and they're trying to get loads of stuff. It's quite clear that Selena straight away is a part of this whole thing. They find a coffin. It's like, oh my God, what is it? They put it on a plane. Turns out to be Dracula, Jared Butler. Um, the one thing I'll say right about this entire movie, which kind of scares me a bit. Um, he, Dracula is kind of like visiting um, Mary Heller Van Helsing, who was the child of Abraham Van Helsing. Uh, she hasn't seen her father in 15 years. I can guarantee you I don't know where he is. Um, but she's been visited by him. It's all a bit raunchy. Then Abraham explains to Simon that actually Mary Heller has Dracula's blood in her. So it's part of him. You know, I don't know. I was kind of trying to figure out how it was. I think I missed the whole explanation of how she got the blood. I think actually... She got it as a child, not pre-conception, because I was like, is he having sex dreams by his daughter? Like, what is happening here? It's like, this is vile. So I couldn't get over the fact that I thought it was incredibly ancestral the whole way through. And then I realized, actually, I think I picked it up wrong. But still, it was weird <laughs> anyway. There's lots of fighting. There's lots of hammy accents. It's uh, all great. You know, people work in HMV. It's hilarious. Um, they go on to, you know, try and kill Dracula. Um, it <laughs> turns out, Emer, that Dracula is Judas Iscariot. Yes, that one is is a beautiful wash moment. And I was like, I wonder if this is like his evangelical Christian coming out. No, no, it's nothing to do with him. Um, so yeah, I was like, oh wow wow this is <laughs> so it goes into the whole thing of like he's kissing him on the hand and he's like she's like oh my god the reason you don't like silver is because, <laughs> it's because of the cross the, the 30 pieces of silver yeah and then she's like just say sorry you can go back to him and he's like as if i'd go back to him and i was like oh my god what is happening are we actually in the Da Vinci Code? What's what's going on? This is bananas. I was like, what's that one where um, Stigmata? I was like, where have they just melded all these bananas movies together and just gone, poof, there you go. Have that. <laughs> this is mad. It was bananas crazy. The minute they showed The Last Supper and then this guy with beautiful curly hair turned red and I was like, that's Gerard Butler. Oh my God, Dracula is Judas. Judas, Judas Iscariot. 
so yeah, it was all a bit mad. Um, then Mary Heller is um, saved by Simon and she now knows who she is and who she was always meant to be, the daughter of her father. And she will never let Dracula out again. It will happen. But isn't she like, am I right around? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's enough. Yeah, so it's kind of like, she's like, ah, oh, it's mad. It's just bananas. It is. It's, do you know there's a Dracula 3000 though where it's Dracula in space and he got Casper Van Dien in it and I can't remember. I think Snoop Dogg's in it as well. I think I need to see that because this was excellent. This was pure yeah. gold. Yeah. Pure gold. Dracula in space. Look, if you need something to watch that you just go, this is wild. Watch it. It's hilarious. Um, yeah, as I said, it's very much Quentin Tarantino presents Hostel. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there was a part of me that was like, like as we were talking earlier, it's like, what involvement did Wes Craven have in Wes Craven presents? Yeah. Not much, <laughs> turns out. So I kind of kind of cheated, but kind of didn't. Glad I watched it. And actually, one little tidbit that I will actually leave you with. I don't know if that's the use of the word tidbit. I don't know what that means. But yeah, no, you're right. Um, about Wes Craven is he was working on this movie. It like absolutely bombed. He was like, I felt fairly bad because there was loads of stuff happening in my life at the moment at that time. And I think it really influenced how bad the movie was. And um, he was he found out that his <laughs> his whole marriage was a sham I was like whoa there's a story behind this Um, but he also had just been let go as the director of Beetlejuice oh wow I didn't know that what would that movie have been Jesus yeah could you imagine like instead of Tim Burton's Beetlejuice Wes Craven's Beetlejuice I think that would have been a hell of a lot darker like, I want to see them both. Yes, actually, I would not see that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I definitely want to see it. But yeah, crazy. I was like, oh, wow. That's, that's, that's mental. Yes. I was very excited about that. Yeah. And yeah, that is my, my words, Cravon. Um, Cravon. Yeah, absolutely love him. Um, really inspired my love of her. Um, I yeah, I feel like for both of them, I is like I was totally thinking when I was like going to pick the people understairs, and I realized it's a Wes Craven film. I was like, well, I'm not going to watch it because I'm not going to be doing Wes Craven because you're going to be doing <laughs> Wes Craven. I was like, I'm not even going to bother. Like, there's no point in even asking her who she's doing. <laughs> And I feel as well, like when I when I went down to like the brass tacks of it, I was like, you know, who did I want to do? And I was like, well, you know, what horror movies? Because I think I remember like Googling, like, you know, prolific horror movie directors, you know, they've done so many. And then you've got like, oh, these guys have only done like two films or three. And then when I happened to just be like, oh, I'll look at John Carpenter. I remember like we spoke about him a lot when we were like about the influence of horror movies on like as a culture. And all that, like he was so quotable, all the stuff he did. And then I was like, look, I mean, I'm best look into him and see what has he done. And then I forgot he's just such an all-rounder. Like I know at the time a lot of his films didn't do well, but they just 
they mean something still to people at this day and age. Yes. And, and that's, yeah. And like, I mean, to be so fluid between sci-fi, horror, supernatural horror, and even like kind of tongue-in-cheek films. Yes. Like very satirical films as well, like with They Live. And you're just like, this just works. Like, I don't know of any other director who can... Well, maybe I'm sure someone could point it out to me if I just off the top of my head, I can't think of one that can work over different genres and subgenres within a genre as well. And still, like, again, he doesn't, well, I'm sure he does care if it doesn't do well, like critically or whatever, but he, it still doesn't stop him, which is the best part. And he's got such a good repertoire of films. Yes. Yeah. As does Wes. And he did what he does best. For a man who didn't want to do horror, he could not do good horror. Yeah. And from a man who like really started off in that exploitative kind of area to then have gone on to do like Scream, which is just so different. And where she kind of talks about the fact that like, oh, you have this big breasted girl who's running around. Like, that's just ridiculous. I was just kind of like, it, like he really, he moved with. The times. The times, but it was always his his take on it like fingerprint on it like yeah I thought that was really cool I was kind of like okay I really like that without him I think you would have been waiting a long long time before you would have had the self-aware film because once that happened in horror you had self-aware rom-coms you had self-aware political yeah. you know like they weren't afraid to like bring like break the fourth wall almost without quite breaking it completely um, and it's similar enough then with John Carpenter with the whole kind of the point of view of the killer yes and yeah both kind of really like invented these like horror movie tropes that like just opened the door for so many others they're um, very groundbreaking yeah 100 percent if there are any other directors that people out there feel like as if should be discussed or given a nod to, feel free to message us because like I said, we only decided to focus on one. Again, I'm going to go back and say I'm blaming the heat. We could only like focus on one each oh, and hi. add in a film because I was like, well, we do too. And I was like, I can't. I can't. Yeah, it was like, like, uh, no, Emer, we won't. Yeah. <laughs> and as soon as I said it, I was like, why did I say that? <laughs> please grace don't be like yes of course we will fantastic idea you're like god damn it wow. no. <laughs> next week we are going to be focusing on our two-year anniversary of uh because you were home uh we launched um in 2020 mm-hmm. august yeah um, mid-august yeah so we're just going to have a bit of a round up a bit of a chat if you have any questions please send them through to our instagram on because you're home with an underscore in between each word and we'd love to yeah answer any questions you have at or all just even hear from you whatever your thoughts are yeah, yeah. even if you're like two years is too long you it's longer. <laughs> <laughs> let us know already <laughs> So yeah, make sure you are following us on Because You're Home on Instagram with an underscore in between each word. And you can follow us on most podcast platforms if you listen to us on one of the, one of the many ones that are now availing of the rate and review or, or any sort of that. Like do that. Not like what I did at a recent house party and grabbed everyone's phone that I knew and made them follow us on Spotify and give us a great idea. That's why, Grace, if you'll notice, we took a bit of a bump. Love it. I love it. But anyway, don't make me have to go to your house at a house party, steal your phone, 
make you follow us if you're not god forbid if you're not already following us on spotify or whatever but uh, don't make me come to your house yeah and i'll make you rate us god damn it and it'll be five goddamn stars but if you don't want to do that and you don't want me to stalk you just go tell a friend i'll appreciate that as well we really would and we will talk to you next week guys thank you so much